Good morning, all. Great to see you. Hey, take your Bible, if you have that with you or one in front of you, and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, maybe you're in the flat screen world, so pull that flat screen out and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You might have heard of this chapter before. It's kind of appropriate for today, is it not? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'll be reading through the 13 verses that are here. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 1 begins this way, as Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. For love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, and it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Father God, thank you for this text, these verses that, Lord, we're all familiar with. But they were new to the church in Corinth when they read it. And Lord, I pray that as we look at what it meant for them, what was going on for them, Lord, we'd reflect on where it is for us today. That, Lord, love isn't something we're just to know about. It's not just even as much as something to do. It's to who we're to be, because that's who you are. So, God, open our hearts, open our minds. Holy Spirit, I pray that you illuminate your word for us, and we gain understanding and encouragement today and reminders as we look at this text and apply it to our lives. Guide and direct us now as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So at every wedding I've officiated since 2000, 25 weddings since then, I've always quoted several verses from 1 Corinthians 13. If you were at one of those weddings, you would have heard me do that. And the question might come up, why do you do that? Well, of course, it's about love. Well, that's true, as we just read and we know. But I wanted to give a charge. I wanted to charge, to to challenge each couple to love one another in a Christ-like manner of love. And through all the counseling that I did with them, 
the premarital counselor, never married anybody they didn't have counseling with ahead of time, I instilled in them this importance of love and how that's carried out. And the charge isn't just to know about love, as I said in my prayer, but to live out love, that love would be a verb, that there would be action. You know, as you think about love, love can be indescribably beautiful, can it? Uh, as I thought about that, I, I think it's probably the greatest gift I've ever given. It's the greatest gift I've ever received is to be loved for just being me. <laughs> but on the other hand, love can also be indescribably painful, extremely painful. The loss or destruction of love can hurt for a lifetime. Some of us know that. Some of us are wrestling with that. As I thought about that, I looked up, just decided to Google the word love. Because <laughs> people are searching for it, right? I received back over 15 billion results just from Googling the word love. There's a lot of people that are looking for, what is this? How do I find this? What is this supposed to be in my life? Because love is important to all of us, is it not? We, we have a holiday today. It's important between husband and wife. It's, it's important love is between children and their parents, between siblings, between friendships. And, and love is important between us here as a church as church, as the body of Christ. It's important for all of our relationships, both in our family and outside of our family. But most significantly, <laughs> most significantly, love is important to God. Love is important to God. 1 John 4, 8 tells us this, that God is love. God is love. As a kid growing up in the Sunday school class, I cannot think of a Sunday school class as a child I was in that we did not sing, Jesus loves me. <laughs> Who would have thought that when Anna Warner wrote that, it would become something that all of us would know as we grow up in the church? And, and that Robert Bradbury, who would write the chorus of that, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, right? And as the chorus would go, the Bible tells me so. And I thought about that song because when I look at John 4, 8, that God is love, I'm thinking, well, that's where they had to get it from. It comes from Scripture. It's who God is. The truth is God is love. It is not to be understood as one of God's many activities that he does. And while it is true that he does, but it's not an activity. Rather, God is love is to be understood in that all of God's activities Everything he does is loving because that is who he is. If God creates, he creates in love. If God provides, God provides in love. If God rules, he rules in love. If God judges, he judges in love because God is love. To put it another way, all that God does is the expression of his nature, which is to love. Again, all that God does is the expression of his nature, which is to love. I like to think of it as, you know, it's the nature of birds to fly. 
It's the nature of fish to swim. It's the nature of dogs to bark in my neighborhood. It's the nature of God to love. That is just who he is. That's what he does. It's, it's his being. And since God is love and since we're made in his image, it follows God's command to us to do the same, right? To love. We're not to just know love as a noun, but to live out love. That love would be a verb. Jesus put it this way in John 13, 34 to 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13, 34 and 35. I don't know if you notice here, but it raises the question, why does Jesus characterize love one another as a new command? If you go back to the Old Testament, we see that. I don't know if you caught it. A new command I give you, love one another. They're thinking, well, that's not new. Oh, here's the new part. As I have loved you, (laughs) as Christ has loved you, so you must love one another. That's what's new. The whole understanding, the whole definition, the whole meaning of what love is was reshaped and reformed from in a culture and a society to understand love in a whole different way. To love as Christ's love, and that's what we as his children are to do. This new command, this godly nature to love others, well, it went missing in the church at Corinth. It wasn't found there. Let me me bring a reminder for us today. might get your hands ready for this. Who is the church? Help me out here. Do you remember this one? Can you do this for me? Who is the church? This is the church. This is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the what? People. Oh, you've done this before. Well, what was going on is these people were, they were not liking each other, slapping each other around in the words that they expressed. It was not the way it was intended to be. And here Paul writes now in this chapter, the people were not loving. Their definition of love defaced the noun and destroyed the verb. So Paul is writing here. And since the people in the church of Corinth were falling or failing rather to love one another, I started thinking, well, why do we have chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians? Why is Paul writing a letter on love? I mean, why does the Corinthian church have in their first letter the most famous chapter of love in all the Bible? If this is how they were treating one another, why is this in here? In this context. And you might be wondering, well, if that's the case, if that's how they're treating one another, and they're loving towards each other, why then is 1 Corinthians 13... Verses I would quote at a wedding ceremony or a chapter we would cover today on Valentine's Day. You know what I can say to you? I heard those questions. I love your questions. You have great questions. And what I want to do is uh, expect uh, through this time as we look into God's word to answer these questions and to provide some ways to show love to others. So from 1 Corinthians 13 I just put it as love is dot, 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 because that's where we go to turn and find out what love is as Paul wrote it. 
But I just want to go back just for a moment to verse 31 of chapter 12. And this phrase, it says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way. The most excellent way to do what, Paul? (laughs) The most excellent way to do what? To serve the body of Christ. To serve the body of Christ. To serve one another in the church. The most excellent way is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. This is what the most excellent way is. 13 verses on how to love one another. This is where this comes in and what he wants to address here to this church. As I said, the people in the church at Corinth were failing to love one another. And the word had gotten out. (laughs) Their reputation was out into the community, out into the world, that Paul knows this and begins to write this letter to them. In this letter to the Corinthian church, Paul has addressed numerous problems. If you go through the book, and just a quick flyover, he's addressed the issue of division. They're divided. They're not unified. There's disorder rather than having order. There's lawsuits. They are suing one another, taking one another to court. The person they sit across from in the pew, they're going, I'm taking you to court this week. Imagine that. There's sexual immorality, including incest that's going on in this church. There's a selfish practice in communion feasts. When they met for communion, the Lord's Supper, they didn't just have communion and go back to their chair. It was, it was a whole community of believers coming together for a supper. That's where we get this idea of the Lord's Supper they would come together, and that was part of the whole gathering to remember what Christ had done, and there was a feast that went with that. So all these problems are going on. Well, there's another problem, and it's the excessive value placed on certain spiritual gifts over other spiritual gifts. And that is what chapter 12 is about. We have a listing of the gifts. Romans 12 has that. Ephesians 4 has that. The main sections in scripture we can go have a listing, an outline for us of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gift is something that you are, that you get, that God gives you when you receive Christ as Savior. You have the Holy Spirit and he gives you a, a primary spiritual gift to serve the body, to serve Christ's church until he comes. And so this problem that they had here is they viewed that the sign gifts, what are the sign gifts? Knowledge would be one of them. Prophecy would be another one. Speaking in tongues would be another one. Interpretation of tongues would be a final one. It's in this nutshell here. And they viewed those sign gifts as superior to the other gifts. So the gift of helps, it's like, well, you've, that's great, but I have the gift of tongues. And so on and so on as they looked at one another. And this brought disunity and hostility toward one another, which is where we see this going on in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. So to address this problem, Paul states in chapter 12, verse 31, and now I will show you the most excellent way. In other words, all these gifts are important. All these gifts have value. All these gifts are to be used within the church. But there's a more excellent way to serve one another. 
I want you as a church to get this is what he's writing. I want you to understand the value of this. The most excellent way to serve one another in the church is through love. Go back to your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, 2, and 3. If I speak in tongues of men, now you begin to understand where he's coming from. And if angels but not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's like the cymbal room at a at guitar center. It's just, it, you, what can you hear? There's just, it's just all this noise going on. If I have prophetic powers, oh, that's a valuable gift. And I understand all mysteries, this idea of knowledge. And if I have all faith, Faith like what? Well, to, how about like I could remove a mountain if I could put that into existence and now to have love? Paul's saying, you're missing it. <laughs> That's nothing. If I give away all that I have, again, a good thing to do. If I deliver up my body to be burned, to be a martyr, to have that gift, if you will, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul wants them to understand this reality. Paul continues with the supremacy of love being manifested in the church by stating this in verse eight. Love never ends. But catch this, guys. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So these gifts that you're making more important and more valuable, more superior to the other gifts, and you're judging other people in the church as less valuable, those gifts, they're all gonna pass away. They're all gonna have, they have an end date. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. In other words, there's something more to come when Jesus returns. He uses the analogy of when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But then maturity came, which is what the spiritual gifts are to do. They're to bring maturity to you as a believer. As you grow in your faith and knowledge, you begin to serve one another. And there's a maturity with that that comes. And so when I become a man or a full, you know, woman, I gave up childish ways. In other words, I began to have perspective of how the gifts work. I began to have an understanding of, of my maturity and my faith and my relationship with Christ. That continued to grow. He uses an analogy right there from their society of where uh, alloy or, or uh, platinum would have been used to make a mirror. And he says, look, we see a mirror uh, dimly. In other words, we don't have this perfection that we have today, right? But then face to face, in other words, when Christ comes, now I know in part that I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known by him. So he's wanting to, them to grasp this reality. And so since the people in the church at Corinth were failing to love one another, again, I ask the question, why do we have 1 Corinthians chapter 13? And my answer would be this. The answer is in the question. The answer is in the question. The Corinthian church desperately needs chapter 13 to be about love. That's why it's there. They need a whole chapter devoted on what this is about, what it's to be about in God's church. It's interesting, when you go through much of Paul's writings, we read about in the New Testament churches, failures, <laughs> shortcomings, sin. The idea here is that Paul wants us to learn. 
today and not repeat. We don't want to cancel the culture of the past of the church so that we can learn today to live the way Christ wants us to live and have the church that God desires us to have. You know, I thought for a moment many years ago that, oh, that, this had to be something that happened back then. It can't happen now. We can't have the sign gifts be something that would cause disunity. That, that's, not, that's, that's, that's back then. We've all learned from that, right? No church is having that issue. And then one of my great friends, Eric Engelman, goes over to study German in Germany. It's a good place to go to study German, right? Because he's preparing to go to, to do his doctorate at the University of Vienna in theology. When Eric shows up there and starts going to church, Eric, I met him when I was at Talbot School of Theology, and we both got our Master of Divinity from there. He went on further and got what's known as a Master of Theology, your THM. Now he's going forth to get his doctorate in theology. Keep that in mind. Because at this church he goes to, they look at him and say, Eric, do you speak in tongues? No, I don't. Can you offer prophecy? No, I can't. Do you have a special knowledge? No, I don't. Eric, despite all your education, you can't teach in this church. That's what he's dealing with. Because they saw those gifts as something superior than any other gift. And in that setting, it disqualified him as a man of God who knew the word of God, has written books since then. As, you're not, it's not right for you to do that. Again, I thought that this was something back then. That they would have understood, let me show you the most excellent way to serve others, and that's to love. And as I thought about my journey as being a pastor through the church, and I thought, you know, I haven't had that that I've experienced as a challenge for loving or preventing people from loving others. What I experienced in the past churches I've served in is what I would call a ministry superiority. I don't have time to go into the stories and the counseling and the meetings. But in essence, I had certain people who viewed their ministry that they carried out in the church as superior to another person's ministry. And as a senior pastor for a number of years, it frustrated me so much. It ticked me off. And I said, sit down. What is it? What, what is it? What causes this? Why are some of your staff people this way? It drives me nuts. And you know what I found? It's because they hadn't been loved in the past. And so at this point in that ministry, they're guarded. They're together. Be careful. Anybody could take our ministry. Anybody could see their ministry is superior to our, okay, and so that was that going on. And I thought, man, so it was a failure to love. Oh, this takes me back to the scriptures, right? So that was there and worked through some of those through the years. 
And then about four and a half years ago, I landed here. Do you know what I found out at Grace Hills Church? I found you love one another. I found this is the first church that I had been privileged to serve in that there actually was love. That there wasn't disunity. That there wasn't a, a certain ministry that was more superior to another ministry. When we could meet in person, and Lord willing, we'll do that again soon enough, we used to have these um, pastor staff, uh, church staff uh, meetings with people who are new to our church. And we, we had it at Pastor Mike's house. We've had it here as well. It's like a dessert kind of gathering. Maybe some of you went to those. But I remember uh, I was new here, and I think it was the first one I did, so after about a year being here or so. And one of the things I was able to say to the people who were new, I said, you know, one of the things I love about this church is, like, there's nothing hidden We're unified. There's no backstory behind closed doors about, oh, this issue. Do you know how refreshing that is for me? <laughs> do, do you know how blessed you are to have that? That's how it's supposed to be. And yet it took me over 20-some years to get to a church where I could find that. No church is perfect. We're not perfect. It's just that I found that, hey, you know what? We're not perfect. We're just us. But we love one another. That's what I found out about you. And since the Corinthian believers were unloving, and since this is not a problem in my experience at Grace Hills Church, you might ask the question, then why is 1 Corinthians their text on Valentine's Day? Give two reasons. It's to serve as a reminder to our church who we are and who we want to continue to be. Amen? And it's to serve as an encouragement for all of us in our relationships, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in parenting, whether it's with our siblings, whether it's in friendships, whatever it is. And while I've used 1 Corinthians 13 in weddings as a charge to a couple, the charge really is for all of us to love one another better as the being of who we're to be and charge for us, for all of us today. And this charge isn't just to know about God's love, to have a head knowledge of it, but to live out love. That love would be a verb. So what are these ways that this looks and turns into a verb? Well, love is a verb when you love generously. When you love generously. Paul states in verse four that love does not envy you might have it in your translation that love is not jealous. It's agape love, unconditional love. It's godlike love. To love generously works as an antidote to counter envy and counter jealousy in the church and in our relationships, whether in marriage or whether in parenting or whether in friendships. It's this idea to love generously. I thought of it this way, the five love languages, perhaps you've read Gary Chapman's book, The Words of Affirmation, Quality, Time, uh, Acts of Service, Gifts, Physical Touch. All of us have a primary love language, is his point in the book. 
And I would hope you would know your love language and the love language of your closest relationships. Acts of service, gifts, physical touch. Pam Kendall Emerson. Do you know the love language of your loved ones? So you could give them a different kind of love, one of those other ones, and they'll feel loved. But to hit it in the bullseye and to do that generously, that's what God's calling us to do. When you love as that way, love is a verb when you love generously. We don't want to be stingy. We want to be generous with our love. Secondly, love is a verb when you love humbly. When you love humbly, when you love with humility, Paul tells us in verse four that love does not boast, it is not proud, that love is not arrogant. In other words, love, when you love as a verb, if you will, you love humbly. To humbly love others like Christ did is to love sacrificially. To love others like Christ did is to love selflessly. To love humbly is to love without a scorecard. Some of you play golf, you know what a scorecard's all about. (laughs) But to love humbly is to have no scorecard keeping track. Did you love me this way? And hopefully your spouse or other loved ones aren't going, let's, oh, add to the scorecard. You're doing well today. Because that fails, I think, to see what love is to be. It's not to boast. It's not to proud. It's not arrogant. To love humbly is to love without expectation of a return. That's hard to do. To love, and there it is. I was thinking about this, talking with Pam about this. We watched every episode, I think, of Everybody Loves Raymond when it was out. And I felt so bad for Raymond because I'm like, what an idiot. But anyway, um, there was this episode where uh, they'd gone on a trip and they returned home and there was a suitcase that apparently had some snacks and cheese and part of it. And there was a suitcase left on the staircase. Some of you, I see nodding your heads remembering that staircase, that, that episode. And so the idea is the days or the weeks go by and Ray thinks Deborah is going to take care of it. Deborah realizes that thinking, I'm not doing it. That's your stuff. So it goes on. It continues to just be aggravating more and more and more. Till finally at the end of the episode, Deborah finally says to Raymond, Ray, I'm going to be the one who got it. In other words, who got the suitcase and took it up. And then the scene, of course, goes into humor. He's like, oh, no, you're not. And they race to get to the suitcase. And they're both trying to pull the suitcase. And then he grabs her legs. And I think Robert walks in the door, of course, at that point. What are you guys doing? And I use that analogy to wonder, are we not like that at times in our marriages or in our relationships with others? I'm the one who got it right. That's a love of arrogance. That's not love really at all. So to love humbly is to love without a scorecard. It's to love without an expectation of a return. Because that's what Paul says 
Love does not boast, is not proud, it's not arrogant. Love is a verb when you love, number three, first, for another's benefit. Paul instructs us in verse five that love is not self-seeking. Oh man, that is so tough. Love is not self-seeking. That love does not insist on its own way. Oh man, can you imagine the church listening to this? And how their thought processes of being uh, that I'm superior to you because of my gifting. Therefore, I can insist on how love should happen. To love first is to live second. To love first is to be others-centered. To love first is to love you, not me. To illustrate this, check this out for a moment. Me. 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 Hold on. Hold on. Me. Mm-mm. Me. 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 I said me. Me, me, me. Me. Mm-mm. Me. 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 Me, me, me. Me, me, me. Me, me, me. 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 You. What? You. 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 For a couple who told me they're not actors, nice work. Do you get it? To love as a verb, to love humbly is to say, it's about you. It's not me. Because that's not going to work. Love is a verb when you love, fourthly, with self-control. When you love with self-control. In verse 5, Paul says to the church and to us and to our relationships that love is to not be rude or easily angered. You might have in your translation, Love is not to be irritable. To love with self-control means to not lose it. Failure, many times, with my kids, with friendships, and in my marriage. To lose self-control. To love with self-control is to love with honest communication. The idea there is that there's a regular time of communication, especially within your, within your marriage. I have a time every night that Pam and I just sit down and talk about life, how we're doing. We want to know each other how, uh, from each other how our days were, what's coming up. And, and I have found from my experience from that, the more we've talked and had that time together, the more I, I think... I have a better uh, shot, I guess, 
at maintaining love as a verb by loving with self-control. Because that communication has been received and hopefully I've listened to it and understand it. As I thought about this, I thought of some contrasts of love with self-control and without self-control. And I thought of my mom and dad. <laughs> my parents were loving parents. For those of you need a reminder, I lost my mom to cancer when I was in third grade and my dad to cancer when I was in eighth grade. So I had a short window to see what their love was like. When I think about my mom at times with her love, for some reason I think about that night she comes, my mom and dad come home and I'm in a bunk bed and my older, one of my older brothers is above me and I feel the bed shaking and my mom said, Andy, get out of bed right now. You get out of bed right now. You get out there to that barn and you clean those pins as like you were supposed to get out of bed right now. And he's falling out of the bed, goes out there and, and, and does that. And I get up because I cannot fall back to sleep right now. I find that I'm a little thirsty. I go out and I see through the window open and I can see my brother on our tractor on our farm at this point with a loader pulling up to one of the pig pens that he was supposed to clean. He's doing now at 11 o'clock at night. And my mom sees me and she goes, what are you doing up? <laughs> uh, well, I kind of got woken up when you came in. Okay, and now I'm kind of thirsty. Get a drink then. Okay, get a drink, I go back to bed. Uh, my mom wasn't like that all the time, but it, I, I think of that moment. And I contrast that with my dad. So as I said, I was already on a farm. I'm probably 10 years old. And I have our farm truck pickup that I go out and drive out in the pasture. I'm supposed to do some work and it's picking up some some uh, scrap wood and whatnot that was up against a fence. And there's a siding on the side of our truck that's supposed to stay on the siding of our truck. It's that's intentioned, a decorative piece. It's not to be decorative in a pasture at the foot of a fence. But I thought, well, let me get closer to the thing. And then next thing I know, I hear, <laughs> and I pull the truck away from the fence. What a concept. And I look and I go, oh, no. I get the work done, and then I have to tell dad that night what I'd done. And my dad was like, well, how big is the pasture? I think it's five acres. So there's plenty of space to drive, right? Yeah. Have we learned a lesson? Don't get so close to the fence when you have all this space. Yeah, okay. That was it. I just questioned, I bring that up, and I, again, I don't want to portray my mom as a very, she was a loving person. It's just in that contrast I wanted to bring out here and this idea of self-control. And I asked the question this way, who's been your best example of loving with self-control? Who's the worst? And who are you most like? Last one. Love is a verb when we love with forgiveness. When we love with forgiveness. Paul affirms in verse five that love keeps no record of wrongs. That love is not resentful. 
To love with forgiveness means to willingly erase the wrongs made by others in the church or in our relationships with others inside our home or our extended family, friendships. Do you recall what Jesus' first words were from the cross? Father, forgive them after all that they had done to him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not know what they do. That's love. I like to think of forgiveness this way, of what true forgiveness looks like. Someone's wronged you. You've gone and sought for, you know, forgiven them. Or they've exchanged that forgiveness there. Just as Jesus says, or God's word says in, in Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Uh, think of it like it being that transgression, that sin, that wrongdoing, thrown out into a huge, huge lake. And as you back away from the lake and come back to the shore and get on shore, you see a sign that says no fishing allowed. The concept being... When you love with a verb, love is a verb when you love with forgiveness. You don't go back and pull it out, especially when someone's wronged you. There's no fishing allowed. It's been forgiven. It's settled. It's done. And so I would just ask you today, is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone you need to love with forgiveness today? So love is a verb. When you love generously, when you love humbly, when you love first for another's benefit, when you love with self-control, and when you love with forgiveness. When love is a verb, here's what happens. Then your love is patient. It's kind. It's joyful. It's protective. It's trusting, it's hopeful, and it's persevering. Just as exactly as Paul said in his word to the church at Corinth, that God wants us to understand. In other words, when you do this, when you love with a verb, then you'll be a loving person. This means you will be loving and living out love as Jesus commanded you to do. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this kind of love. Love that is generous and humble and first and with self-control and with forgiveness. They will know then that you are my disciples if you love like that. Whether it's your church or your spouse or your children or your siblings or your neighbors or your friends, well, we want them to think of you. Insert your name. Loves me. I don't know about you, but I want to, I'd love to be known as that. Not just on Valentine's Day. Not just when life is how I want it to be. But all the time. That so-and-so, in this case, Bill, is loving. They love me. God, you love us. 
And you sent your son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins to demonstrate that love. Lord, thank you. Thank you for that love. Thank you for loving us when we were rejecting you, when we wanted nothing to do with you. God, when we look at your love, it is so generous. When we read through Philippians 2, we see there's humility. Jesus, we see that you put us first for our benefit, for a lifetime, for eternity. Jesus, you've loved with self-control. And as we saw from the cross, you loved with forgiveness. God, on this day, this Valentine's Day, and throughout 2021 and the rest of our lives, God, would you help us to love as you've called us to love, both here in your church, Grace Hills, and in our families and our homes and with those around us that you give us the opportunity to love. May they see us and know, yeah, they love me. For your honor and to point people to your name, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.